Welcome back to From His Taught. I'm your host, Michael Lewis. In this episode, I'm going to introduce a new format to the podcast, that of a conversation. These conversations will cover complex issues that help us better understand social policy and discourse. In this episode, I'm going to introduce you to Leandra Gonzalez, who will talk to us about data science, what it is, her experience in it, and how to break into the field, from algorithms to AI to the networks powering our world. This field plays a critical role in how we reason and make decisions collectively. From here, we move on to hot topics and controversies that are informed by the practice of data science. We cover how companies are being forced to rethink their infrastructures, how researchers are grappling with the immense power of machine learning, and how data science is causing us to rethink what we once thought we understood. I suspect after listening that you, like both Leander and I, will be left wanting further discussion on some of the more controversial issues. I look forward to digging deeper into these issues with Leander in the future as we continue our conversation. Indeed, we share common ground and technical backgrounds, but our worldviews are uniquely formed and shaped. These conversations might get challenging at times, but we believe they're necessary. For without dialogue, aimed at humble yet constructive ends, we're left facing a world of increasing nihilism and cynicism. I reject this outcome, and I'm grateful for the good faith Leandra extended to me. I hope you get as much out of our conversation as we did. Now, without further ado, and on behalf of Freedomcast Incorporated, I present my conversation with Leandra Gonzalez. Hey there, and welcome to From Is to Ot. This is our first interview with Leandra Gonzalez, a data analytics professional at Microsoft. Hey, Leandra. Hey, nice to see you, Mike. Likewise, likewise. So Leandra and I first got to know each other, and I think this is correct, during the Harvard Data Science Program a few years ago. Yes, yes, that is. Yeah, that is when we met. Yeah, Leandra was kind enough to start organizing, you know, herding sheep, as we like to say. Uh, got a Discord server or something, or maybe a WhatsApp group arranged for us and Something like that. Yeah, like a group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was quite helpful. So well, we're going to cover a few things. Leandra's been very gracious with her time. We're going to cover uh, her background, her story in data science, maybe some tips and tricks for people looking to break into it, people who are already in it, some of the kind of hot topics and controversies around data science. And then uh, I promised a fun rapid fire round of questions towards the end. So I hope that this is illuminating for, for those of you listening. So Leandra. Before we get into yes. your background, can you tell me what data science means to you? Ooh, that's a loaded question. Yeah, no, um, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's going to come with the pitchforks. Um, to me, data science is the marriage of a number of disciplines to drive data-driven decisions. So I would say the core fundamentals are obviously statistics or mathematics, a little bit of computer science. And then I would say, obviously there's the the domain expertise, but that's the area where I would say, you know, that could be vast depending on the industry that you're in. But there's a little bit of engineering, a little bit of math and statistics, and then a little bit of computer science. And all with the, the, the overall goal of solving a business problem. Awesome. I think that that is a agreeable and comprehensive definition. The purists will not come out with their pitchforks and torches. Uh, I think that's pretty uncontroversial. So fair enough. Uh, so in your experience, and you've had several data science roles, feel free to speak about anyone or, or 
any selection of them. What mm -hmm. would you say a data scientist does generally day to day? Yeah, um, I would say generally speaking, it's it's sort of a mixture of a lot of different things. So for instance, you've got your domain area, right? And so it's a lot of meetings, I would say, to understand A, the business problem, the business context, uh, the strategy, a lot of times that you're not fully aware of. And then there's understanding the underlying data. So that's the other part of say part two is you know going through the data. If you're lucky enough to have access to data dictionaries or any sort of documentation there, that would be great. But of course. You know, that's generally rare in, in my experience. Yes. So it's a lot of experimentation and understanding the data, um, understanding how it's structured as well. So you're not doing any like joins that don't make any sense, for instance. Um, and then there's the modeling part, um, which I'm going to go ahead and include the like preliminary statistical analysis in there as well. So understanding the distribution of the, the data or understanding if there's any missing information, um, any sort of correlations or relationships, um, understanding, you know, the dimensionality of the data. So there's the exploratory part, both technical and non-technical. And then there's like the modeling. I think that's, again, very fair and comprehensive. What um, do you have a particular aspect that you think was perhaps most challenging for you as you were getting into data science? Yes. And oddly enough, I feel like it's changed over time. Mm. So as someone who did not originally go to school for something technical, definitely the computer science side uh, was very challenging for me. I, I think it was definitely a, a hump that I had to get over. Um, luckily, there's a lot of free and affordable information out there to learn those things, but it wasn't like I was going into it already as a software engineer or something like that. Um, I've always liked math and I consider myself to be good with numbers. So that part wasn't as daunting. Um, although I think over time, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And so then that's when you realize, oh, wow, I need to learn some more. So mm -hmm. it kind of goes back and forth between getting comfortable with programming and then getting comfortable with like stats or calculus and then realizing what you don't know. And it, it goes back and forth. Sure. That's fair. I, I've heard this and I hope I don't butcher this analogy, but I've heard it before mm -hmm. that kind of the relationship between your knowledge and your ignorance is that if you think about a circle, your knowledge is the area inside the circle. Your awareness of your ignorance is the perimeter of the circle. So as your knowledge grows, yes. so does your awareness of your ignorance. Exactly. So I think it's good. It's humbling. And it also, I hope, you know, or at least I think this theme will emerge in our conversation. Being in working in data science is something where you have to be comfortable not knowing things and trusting that you will learn them as you need them. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. Cool. So you did mention that you came from a kind of a non-traditional background. And I have a story about someone else who I think I'll probably be interviewing in the future who came from a somewhat similar background. And maybe you could speak to that a bit. What, what's your background yeah. like? Where'd you grow up? What was your training in? That kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. I always like telling the story. People are like, what? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. What was your plan? It's like, I didn't really have one at the beginning. So um, my undergrad was actually in music and business. So essentially I did like a dual program where I went to school for violin, but my parents were like, you're not just going to go to school for violin. You need a backup plan. So 
attack on business as well. Um, and a lot of the courses that I took in my business class, I would say exposed me to like statistics and marketing and um, operations, you know, all those lovely business courses. And so when I was looking for internships, um, this is definitely where my interest in, I would say, analytics sparked. It was actually really hard to find internships that I was looking for at the time. At the time, I wanted to be like in music business. I wanted to be like a music supervisor or work in music publishing or something like that. Um, but I'm from Columbus, Ohio. So there's not a ton of like music business in Ohio. And so I ended up getting this internship. Um, my first internship was at the Ohio Department of Insurance. And I was basically an actuarial science internship there and working with a lot of spreadsheets. And that was actually my first, my first exposure to SQL as well, working in databases. Um, and I thought it was interesting. I didn't think much of it, though. I didn't go, oh, this could be a career. It was just sort of like me satisfying a internship requirement at the time. And then from there, I moved on and did another internship for a music promoter, a small independent music promoter in Columbus, Ohio, um, in their marketing department. And they really seem to value my ability to use numbers and Excel and all that more so than all the creative cool stuff that I wanted to get involved with. So from there, I graduated and I said, okay, I want to do grad school. And I found this really cool program at Carnegie Mellon that is an entertainment industry management program, but it is based in their information systems school. I still to this day don't really understand why it's based in that school, but because of that, I was exposed to a whole new world that I was never exposed to up until then. Um, I was in some of these, like, these classes you have to take as part of the program where it's like, you gotta take stats, probability, you have to take like these database courses and stuff. Because the idea is for you to be still quantitatively uh, gifted, I guess, because it's sure. CMU. So they right. want everyone coming out of there to be pretty good with computers. Mm -hmm. And so I was going to these classes with like software engineers and like data engineers. And these people have years of experience in this. Um, and I was getting great grades. I was getting A's in like my stats classes and everything. And I was like, I can do this actually. Like I can actually do this. And I never thought of it as a career until then. Um, and in fact, I um I remember I will always talk about this conversation because this is, I think this was like the moment where I changed my mind was when I had a conversation with someone who was getting internships. Everyone was talking about their internships, right? And I'm one of the entertainment kids. So I'm like just trying to get an internship at like NBC or Sony or something just to like make minimum wage this summer. Right. Um, and I was talking to this other person. And they're like, oh, yeah, I got an internship at IBM. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Can I ask you like how much that pays? And they're like, oh, $60 an hour. And I was like, that's an internship, you know, like. For me, you know, I don't come from like a wealthy family or anything. So like $60 an hour is like a good paying job from, yeah. oh, from yeah. my perspective. Yeah. So that really opened my eyes. Like I am, I am in the wrong major <laughs> or something. <laughs> so from there, it kind of took off. I kept getting these jobs that were 
um, like, hey, you need to know how to use Excel or Access or um, work your way around a database. Um, and it wasn't until call or my graduate school where I got experience in R. So um, from one of the stats classes I took, we had to use R. And I started using that on the job one time because Excel just wasn't cutting it anymore. It kept crashing and all that. And then from there, I just ended up learning Python. And it just it's just kind of like an iterative process. Of like, oh, what's this? And you learn more and then you get a job and you learn more on the job. And that's pretty much my origin story, I guess. <laughs> Would you say that it's fair to summarize part of that is it's not that everything has to be planned out in some sort of perfect linear fashion before you begin? Yes, exactly. I don't think... I, I'd be surprised if that actually still happens. Um, <laughs> even people who've gone through school, computer science or math or whatever, I don't, I don't feel like what they had planned is where they ended up in most cases. Yes. As a marine biology major, I can tell you oh. that is at least the case for me as well. Um, so let's back up just a bit. I want to touch on a couple of things you mentioned. Uh, one, that you played violin. So mm -hmm. you played violin. I played violin quite poorly, but for a while. And then another, a gentleman who is also a data scientist in a, in the tech space uh, that I'm familiar with, he plays violin quite well. And so it's interesting that there's this overlap coming from a, a music background, a, a life sciences background in my case, or he has an accounting background. Oh. So do you think that there's anything there about that in your experience? Obviously, we're not trying to generalize from a sample size of three. But do you think that there's something there? Because I think people originally, when they were getting into data science, they were coming from computer science, physics, that kind of background. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. certainly those technical skills are great. But is there something you know more creative about data science that draws in people from different backgrounds? Yeah, I think there's a number of ways you can think about it. Um, for me, personally, I know a lot of people who actually uh, come from a music background and end up going to something more technical, whether it's data science or software engineering. Um, I think it's because with music in particular, I feel like it probably uses the same side of the brain that you use for math because it's basically audible math, if you think about it. Um, so I think there might be a correlation between people who enjoy music and who are who are adept in math, but there might not necessarily be someone who is into music and wants to do something technical. Sure. Uh, yeah. So I think there's probably like, do you have the capacity to do it? And do you want to do it? Right. And then I also think there's probably a, a third small group that I also feel like I overlap in, which is, um, were you exposed to this as a career option? Mm -hmm. uh, which for me, I wasn't. So. Mm -hmm. I think that is something to consider too. Yes, yes. I hope we can talk about this in terms of pipeline problem as it's been dubbed or representation, all sorts of issues around that uh, here in a little bit. So one more thing on the violin and I promise I'll let it go. So are you familiar with the uh, duo? They're a musical duo called the Two Cellos? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Whenever someone asks me who's not from the data science space and this is, <laughs> you can give me your, you know, unvarnished critical feedback if you want here. When they ask mm -hmm. me what data scientists data science is, I send them a video of the two cellos playing music, right? Because it's always okay. some sort of classical music with a twist. They're quite gifted with the stringed instruments they have to be playing, usually cellos. Mm -hmm. But they play, the way they use the instrument is different than I think most people are traditionally, certainly traditionally taught, but when you traditionally hear a cello as well. And mm -hmm. I think about that as a 
reasonably good analogy for data science that you need to have certain mastery of fundamental skills before mm. you can start to be creative and apply them in new ways. But yeah. once you have that, you know, you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to be at their level to be able to break into data science, but you yes. do need some level of strict training. And then mm. that process of disciplining yourself then opens up the landscape again for you to kind of do something new. Yes, I totally agree. Um, in fact, it's so funny you, you say that because I'm like a huge fan of like prog rock and there's this band I follow called Polyphia. They're, actually, I think they're from Texas. Um, they're amazing. I highly recommend looking them up. They're like my favorite band, but awesome. um, it's basically instrumental guitar music for the most part. And I was watching this video the other day of a guitar teacher reviewing one of their newest songs that came out. And he was obviously blown away because these guys are like, like prodigies, all of all, all four of them, I think it was four. Um, they're prodigies at what they do. And the one thing that the music teacher pointed out is that even though they're able to do these like crazy fast notes and crazy tricky rhythms and all that, um, what he's actually really impressed with is their fundamentals and how well they're able to apply it in a way where um, yeah, they can do all this crazy stuff, but the reason why they're so palatable for non-music nerds is because they're able to use a fundamental uh, music writing theory to attract people who maybe are just into like radio music or pop music. So I, I think there is something to be said about learning the fundamentals and then using it in your in your to your advantage. And then even when you do go on to like one of these super crazy things, like you get into deep learning or something, you're still going to need to know the fundamentals regardless. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good, good piece of advice. I taught uh, first. So we're both, Leandro and I are both PhD students at different universities, but I taught my first class this past semester. It was okay. uh, one of the fundamental classes that undergraduate IS students, usually juniors have to take. It mm -hmm. was programming in Java, which I'm not the world's best programmer and certainly not the world's best programmer in Java. But I always tell them, you know, you can never be too good at the fundamentals. And so, you know, if you're, if you're trying to kind of sharpen whatever tools you're trying to bring to industry in an internship and in a job, you can always go back and improve there. Um, and it will pay dividends later on. It's one of the things that kind of keeps on giving. And then, you know, as you yeah. mentioned, you, you can then become more creative. And, and uh, I think your story kind of highlights the fact that you can take skills that you didn't know were valuable and use them in a valuable way. And I think that Absolutely. that's how a lot of us get into this field. Absolutely. And I'm actually learning Java now. So oh, nice. <laughs> might message you with a question later. <laughs> well, I'd be if if I have the answer, I'd be happy to to provide it. And if not, I have the guy was my supervisor, worked in industry oh, for like 40 years doing this stuff. So Whoa. I can be happy to ask him. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course. He's a godsend for the university. He <laughs> effectively works for less than minimum wage. Uh, now that he's retired, he views it as giving back to the, oh, the Houston that's community. Nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's great. He's fantastic. Uh, and of course, an adjunct professor, you know, a lecturer, not a, not a traditional academic, which is, yeah. I think, good for students who want to know what people in industry are looking for. Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. So let's, let's talk a little bit about kind of uh, your experience in data science. Generally speaking, people will forgive me for using the, continuing to use the buzzword, but we're talking <laughs> loosely in this area. What's been the most rewarding part? of your experience career-wise, something you've learned, an interaction you've had, whatever, however you want to answer that is fine. 
Yeah, um, I would say the most rewarding thing as well as the most frustrating thing is two things. Figuring out a problem that took forever to figure out, that's rewarding, but obviously it was very annoying before you figured it out. Sure. And then likewise, learning something new. I, I consider myself to be someone who likes to learn new things, but sometimes you do feel like, I wish that I didn't feel the pressure to learn new things all the time. But when you do learn that thing, it feels really, really good. So that's awesome. So that, that actually is nice. Cause I think you, you at least touched on, if not answered my next question, but I'll, I'll put it to you in case you want to add something more to it. Is there a particular challenge that comes to mind that you've overcome that you really felt like was a kind of like a watershed moment for you in your career? Yeah. Um, I would definitely add imposter syndrome. That is something that never goes away for me. And apparently, you know, based on conversations I've had with very senior professionals in the field, it, it doesn't go away. You know, yeah. there's people who are, you know, they've been doing this for 40 years, you know, maybe your professor still has it. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, but it's actually kind of um, humbling and it's cool to see that you're not alone in that. And um, I think after having it for so long and after working with so many different people from different backgrounds, you realize that it's actually just normal. You know, it's not like this bad thing to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think imposter syndrome that's relatively under control can be constructive for you. It can help propel you forward. Uh, but it yes. certainly there's a, there's a, you know, a downside to that too, where yes. it can become overwhelming. Uh, yes. It's all about control. Like you said. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Can you tell me about a time uh, where a mentor or a teammate really came through for you that, that you thought that kind of interaction really enriched your experience in the field? Yeah, man, there's a couple, but um, the one that comes to mind is actually, um, when was this? A couple of years ago before COVID days. And I was at a data science conference here in LA. And I remember feeling a bit out of place. I felt kind of like, you know, like I felt like no one was really talking to me or really engaging with me. And I didn't personally know anyone there. I kind of went by myself. So that was also something that uh, I wasn't maybe prepared for. And, you know, there were like networking hours and everything. And I was networking, but I didn't feel like it was really connecting with anyone. And then I remember I asked this one woman, she was a data engineer at Netflix. I asked her like to tell me a little bit more about her background and how she got into her field. And she was so warm and opening and like, she just made my day. Um, prior to my interaction with her, I felt like I was going to call my mom crying and telling her that I didn't want to work in tech anymore, basically. Right. <laughs> um, but she literally like saved the day for me. And she even invited me like, to, I didn't even ask for this, but she invited me to swing by the Netflix headquarters and have lunch with her and just to talk about, you know, how her job is. And she, ever since we've actually kept uh, in touch every now and then. Um, and she's just, I'm so grateful for her. I might not even be here if it weren't for her. So it's pretty awesome when you come across someone like that, right? Yeah, it's yeah. incredible. 
I also think that there's another lesson there for people. And certainly, you know, you and I being relatively young in our careers, we can take this yes. forward, but so can, you know, current leaders and movers and shakers in the industry. Something that might seem like a trivial interaction to you might not be so trivial to someone else. Yes. And so whether you're a leader who's like just kind of extending a hand to someone uh, or sitting down and having a chat that can help propel them to keep going forward, overcome that imposter syndrome for that day, yes. or whether you're a student who is introverted by nature, let's say, and you don't want to go to a networking event, you, mm -hmm. you don't have to be Mr. or Mrs. Magnanimous. You can be someone who goes and makes one or two quality connections, and you never know which one of those will lead to opportunities down the line. That could be obviously material in terms of a job, but it could also be unique collaborations or just someone you go and have coffee with a couple of times a year and, and talk shop. Absolutely. And you're, you're so right, Michael, because I just recently had an interaction where I was on the other end of the stick. I was, you know, keeping in touch with this young woman at Microsoft who um, is sort of, you know, considering her options, looking around, trying to figure out what she wants to do next. She doesn't necessarily come from a technical background. I think her um, one of her undergraduate degrees was in economics, but um, she doesn't have like a computer science degree or anything like that. And um, I just connected with her for the second time this week. And she had told me about how like amazing our interaction was the first time and how it like, like she literally chopped her hair off. Like this, this is going to be an interesting discussion, but like um, in the black community is actually um it can be a challenge for some Black women to wear their natural hair in the workplace okay. um, because they don't want to like experience stigma or whatever. And um, she said, you know, you really inspired me to do that because I made a post on LinkedIn a couple months back or something about it. And she literally chopped her hair off and she showed up the next day with like her natural hair. And she was like, like, you inspired me so much. And I was like, whoa, I hope that you really like that decision, <laughs> but she looked gorgeous. <laughs> sure. She looked gorgeous. And um, she she also just felt really energized about her career after our conversation. So I didn't know it had that impact at all. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. The, the kind of ripple effect is, is real and it's uh, humbling and kind of scary, but ultimately I think very meaningful. Yes. That's great. Okay. So uh, last part before we transition, are there any piece of advice you'd offer to people, either in terms of skills they can pick up. You mentioned some courses, obviously we're both familiar with online programs, that kind of thing uh, yeah. that they can do along the way if they're looking to break in or kind of move up in this industry. And are there any, you know, words to the wise about maybe, maybe this career field isn't for you if certain things don't appeal mm. to you or something like that? That's a good point. I don't think people talk about that a lot, actually. Um, for the first question, I would say um, there is like, no end to the resources that you can tap into to learn this stuff. Um, you know, whether it's math or whether it's programming or whether it's like engineering or like databases or whatever it is that you want to learn, everything from like just YouTube to like full-blown certification courses. And there's even like online, like full-blown master's degrees you can take now. So there's plenty of information out there. I would say don't become overwhelmed with the like the magnitude of the information out there. I would say maybe try to find a template of like a program that someone might do if they want to become a data scientist and like kind of pick from there, cherry pick and kind of 
design your own path. That's effectively what I did. I was like, oh, it seems like I need to learn that. And another good way you can get that list is by just looking at job descriptions. Like, oh, apparently you have to know this. So I'm going to add that to my list. Um, and so I would recommend that. In terms of any early signals that it's not for you, that is very interesting. I would say if you don't enjoy programming, it might not be for you just because it's kind of a core component of the job. But I would definitely say don't automatically believe that you're not fit for it because, oh, I'm not a programmer or I'm not a software developer or something like that. Because it's, it's actually pretty fun, actually, um, if I think taught right and if you have the time to actually learn it, it can be very fun. It's almost like a video game in some ways. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Quite literally, actually, for some people, right? Yeah, literally. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I heard you say on another podcast that you viewed the programming, the discipline of programming, similar to how you view the discipline of learning a musical instrument. Can you expand yes. on that? Yeah, I can't believe you found that. It's like deep cut. <laughs> um, yeah, it is. So one thing that I really, I think, something that really transitioned from my undergraduate degree to my current career is just the level of rigor required to learn something new or to master, quote unquote, master something. So, you know, learning the violin, it takes a ton of practice takes a ton of discipline. It takes you setting out the time to learn it and to break the complex things into smaller pieces. Um, and since you're, you know, you have a musical background, you understand, you know, you, you can't just tackle the whole song at once. You have to actually break it into pieces um, and then learn how to extract things that you need to get better at. Like, oh, I, you know, I suck at arpeggios or something. So I need to go and focus in on that. So with programming, it's kind of the same thing. You sort of start with the fundamentals, isolate the things that are very challenging for you and focus on that, and then just be willing to do a lot of practice. Great advice. Great advice. Awesome. Okay. Now let's, we're going to switch into some hot topics slash controversies. And so whatever extent you feel comfortable opining is, is fair game. And, uh, and we won't push too hard on any given issue necessarily. Um, but I do think that I want to reiterate something about our podcast network, which is we want to give people as much runway as they want on these type of issues because i think one pattern we're noticing is that increasingly as we're trying to make sense in society and data science as well as just more generally that the more good faith and rigorous the conversation can be and sometimes that takes time and people you know fumble over words and you know make mistakes the better off we all are in the long run so we're, we're trying to embody that here so uh, any of your, your thoughts on any or all of these topics is greatly appreciated. Okay. Yeah, sure. So, uh, so first data science is quite clearly, I would say, shaking things up. Do you think that that's a fair thing to say just generally? Yeah. Within the, okay. Yeah, I sure. think it's, do, I think it's doing that within industry and also academia. And so we'll mm -hmm. touch on both of these things. So mm -hmm. first, how would you say even, cause you work in tech, whereas I, mm -hmm. I, when I was doing analytics based stuff, I was working in the utility industry which if mm. tech is at the forefront of things, the utility industry is very much structurally a laggard because they can, most utilities can only uh, operate on the cost reduction side because they're re revenue cap. Right. So, so you're playing with fewer degrees of freedom, so to speak, but, but that's okay. It's, I think there's probably similarities in terms of how data science 
you know, generally how people are maybe a better way to say it, how people are trying to make data-driven decisions uh, mm-hmm. in the modern age, that's shaking things up. How would you say that that's affecting companies in terms of how they think about their data, their data pipelines, mm-hmm. uh, legacy systems, that type of thing? Boy, um, it kind of depends on the company because, you know, I work for a lot of organizations that they like the appeal and sort of like, the sexiness of having data scientists, but they're not willing to re, they're not willing to invest in the things that you need in order for that to actually be impactful. Um, invest as in invest the time, the resources, the software or like the data architecture, the talent, you know, like these are a lot of different things that you should invest in before thinking about probably even hiring a data scientist. Yes. Um, And so there are those organizations. And then there's obviously the more mature organizations or ones that primarily function within tech. They're much more mature. Um, But I will also say, you know, the bigger the organization, the more, um, or I say, I would say the more focused you are on a particular scope. So you're not going to be like, um, a jack of all trades, you know, someone who's building the data architecture and you're also doing the data engineering and you're doing the modeling and everything. Some people like that. Some people don't, but Mm -hmm. I think there is a good balance, but I would say in the tech industry, it's, it's definitely more focused on a a sliver of that. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that has anything to do with the fact that they were this, the tech industry broadly is built around information systems and kind of these either online platforms or cloud services and Mm -hmm. and their business model is very much centered around the type of technologies that these different data disciplines interact with a hundred percent it's their core business model it's usually directly tied to the services and products they're selling but also because they're so large and because they're you know I guess, so profitable, they can afford to hire like a million data scientists. And so um, that comes with the extra, you know, extra resources that maybe a smaller organization might not have. Sure. So I I won't name the company I work for, though. It's no secret if people look at LinkedIn, for example. (laughs) Um, but, But I was one of two kind of individual contributor levels, right? So kind of frontline level folks. It was myself who was working in quality assurance data analytics and a mm-hmm. person working in uh, engineering. We mm-hmm. were in a room with probably about two or three dozen managers and directors. And we were just there because our managers and directors were like, you guys deal with this stuff for us. So you guys go instead of us. Mm-hmm. And it was with a tech company. I won't name which one. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't Microsoft. I'll say that. How about that? Uh, it wasn't Microsoft. And they were coming in, they were doing the consulting thing. Hey, mm. look at all these like great projects we've done for these other companies. And maybe mm-hmm. we could do this for you. And this gentleman, his name is Sam. And I looked mm-hmm. at each other and we're like, this would be great. But also, where's the infrastructure? Yeah. Where's the, where, you know, we're both doing, trying to do, you know, work towards this in whatever small capacity we can as a QA personnel and engineering personnel, you know, mm-hmm. what, kind of where is that, you know, that talent stack, that skill set? Um, and then obviously the, the fundamental infrastructure changes that need to happen. It, yeah. It's interesting to see how the consulting appeal 
differs between people who have kind of more technical exposure versus people who perhaps are uh, more on the soft side of business, which is, you know, both are important, certainly. Yeah. But uh, perhaps there's a difference in terms of how people assess and prioritize um, movement towards mm -hmm. making data-driven decisions. That's a good point. Um, that's a very good point. You know, like if you're at an organization, I think I've experienced this myself, um, an organization that maybe have fewer of those technical hands and more of the more business side, um, you know, obviously they don't necessarily understand as intimately as you do everything that goes behind the data architecture, the information systems, all of that. And so they wouldn't quite know, but the problem is that here you are and you need that stuff. And so you have to make a case for it or caveat why you're not able to achieve certain things. Yep, certainly. I think you mentioned picking up uh, a list of skills that one might need if they're bringing, you know, breaking into this space by looking at job descriptions. And, and that, mm -hmm. that's actually something that I did whenever I was at this past company. And I mm -hmm. saw that you at least need some uh, deliverable data visualization skill set. So I picked, yes. not to plug Microsoft, I picked Power BI and, uh, <laughs> And I took home a dashboard that we were, you know, regularly extracting data from databases and manually plugging it in and, and just automated it over a weekend in Power BI. And it wasn't because I was some whiz. I, I knew what the final product had to look like because I worked with yeah. it each week. And I, you know, I knew a little bit about Power BI, but not a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, you know, that is something where you can take the initiative, even if every all the pieces aren't in place. And mm -hmm. I have a feeling it depends... <laughs> Some people subscribe to the idea that you should uh, ask for forgiveness later rather um, than asking yeah. for permission on the front end. I don't mm -hmm. know if I would give that as general advice, but you know, if you're aware of you know what the who the stakeholders are in terms of like getting access to systems and that kind of thing, a lot of times I think you have more kind of the more, the more you learn your role and mm -hmm. and how it is situated within your department or your division and the and the company, the more mm -hmm. you can kind of map out, okay, well, maybe these are some people I need to talk to about getting access to this type of information, even if my role directly doesn't have the responsibility for that type of data. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a good recommendation, actually, to folks who are trying to get more into analytics and data science, because to your point, you might not necessarily have access to the data right now, but if you can make a um, business argument as to why you should have access to it and maybe even provide like a template of what you're thinking about that can not only make you look really good on your job, but you're also learning on the job. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, and you can create the opportunity for a win-win. Um, yes. And then you're more credible down the line too. And if, if they say no, that's, then you're just back where you started. It's no problem, right? <laughs> exactly. Hasn't cost you very much. Um, okay. So kind of on this, you know, data science, shaking things up in industry, how would you say that leaders an organization should balance two competing priorities. And, and this will probably get into some stuff we'll talk about later, but I suspect you, like I, have had situations either personally or with people you know, where they're junior candidates trying to break in and they can't, you know, mm -hmm. it's tough to break in. Yes. That's fair to say. So how do you balance allowing, you know, making it more welcoming, perhaps more expensive for people breaking in with mm -hmm. the other side of the coin, which is that there are certainly a lot of people, you mentioned the internship difference in pay, who will see mm -hmm. something like that and go, okay, well, I'll just put together whatever I need to on my resume to like 
try and get these positions. So there's some people who are, you know, rent seeking for lack of a better term yeah, uh, to try and cash in on a field that's hot right now. And, and I think that's honestly why people get so frustrated with the buzzwordification yes. of data science. How would you, mm-hmm. you know, if you have any thoughts on this, how would you balance those two competing priorities? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, as someone who has been a hiring manager, I would say that what I try to do when it comes to hiring like more junior people is to make sure that there is a pipeline for them, you know, that there, first of all, is an entry-level role for them to go into, and that um, that leads potentially to a role with more responsibility, a little bit more advanced technical requirements, and so that they're exposed to all this technology and what they need to know to become a data scientist. And I think that organically I think what happens is that they realize whether or not they want to do that. And I've seen that too, where, you know, I might hire a a data analyst or a senior data analyst and, you know, they say, you know, I want to get more involved with some of the data science, some of the ML stuff, you know, I was like, cool, like, here's a small little project, you know, that you can work on. And then like, they'll have this question and some of them will really embrace it. Like, oh, this is really interesting. What should I learn? Where should I go? And some of them are like, you know what? I don't think this is really like what I want to do. Yeah. And that's okay, right? Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. I'm thinking of a cousin of mine who works uh, here in Houston. Actually, he's moving to Ohio. Uh, oh. Yeah, very shortly with his family. But he's great. Uh, he's an exceptionally hardworking, proactive person. Doesn't work in, in the data science space, but worked in the master data space for a while. So like ERP systems, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, his experience with some of his coworkers and my experience with some of my former coworkers who are also in that space is, you know, being a senior master data specialist and, you know, you've been working in the industry for a few decades, nothing wrong with that trajectory. You know, if you're mm-hmm. someone who really knows the systems, you're, you're very valuable to a company. You can provide a lot of great feedback. You don't have to be the person doing the flashy things, quote unquote, because a lot of times the people doing the flashy things really, really rely on the confidence. Yeah of people who have that mastery of stuff that would seem, you know, perhaps less glamorous, but equally as important. I have a question for you, actually, Michael. I'm curious. um, Why do you think that data science has become this glamorous child of like tech? Because there's other jobs that didn't get that same like PR, I guess. So are you talking about jobs like data architecture or data engineering? Yeah. Why, why weren't those, you know, or even like, like looking at like database administrators or whatever, like, yeah. Yeah. Why don't those get the same level of consideration or obsession, you know, as data science does? So I will, I'll qualify my answer that in that this is just my opinion. And so all the (laughs) DBAs and, you know, DEs and all you guys, I understand that this is like, my very narrow perspective. So, and we love you guys. We need you guys. And, you know, you folks are doing great work. <laughs> However, you asked why, why is this there? Why is there this appeal? And I think that for me, for example, I, I had some background in statistics because I came from life science. And when I saw the overlap, uh, when I was doing my graduate training, I thought, oh, okay. So there is the way we can make sense of the world mm. to the extent that we can. It shares this commonality of something like probabilistic reasoning towards constructive Mm -hmm. ends, or at least away from destructive ends, something like that. Mm -hmm. 
And so I thought, okay, well, that's a general heuristic I can follow. And then that kind of led me down a philosophical path that where I favor prediction over low level explanations. Ah. That's one. The other, and I think this is maybe a more general rule, is that though uh, database administrators, data architects, data engineers, the work they do is fundamental to a lot of yeah. work data science, data scientists are able to do, and, and pr- arguably more fundamental to the day-to-day running of an organization than mm-hmm. data science. I think that increasingly with the availability of powerful machine learning algorithms, increasingly people who have the credibility to call themselves data scientists have some sort of social credibility about being able to say what things are and are not, or what things Mm. should be and shouldn't be just because Mm -hmm. they work with the modeling side, right? They produce the model that gives you some sort of prediction or test some sort of uh, potential prescription. And I don't necessarily endorse that view, but I think that that is a very powerful force for a lot of people. I see. That makes a lot of sense. Like everyone wants to be the Oracle. Right, right. Yeah. And this is, uh, this actually will get right into something we're talking about in just a moment, which is having different perspectives on a team to try and reduce your blind spots maximally and and take a comprehensive approach to problems you're trying to solve, Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is another reason data science is hot is that, you know, there's this consideration of, Hey, maybe we've overlooked some things. Uh, historically. Um, so, so we've talked about data science shaking up industry and perhaps we'll spend a little bit less time on this because you and I are the only gluttons for punishment that I'm aware of who will be listening to this podcast, who are also doing the academic side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also shaking up research. And so mm-hmm. if you could tell me what, what the PhD program you're in is and mm-hmm. how you view the overlap between that PhD program and data science, if there is oh. one. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I'm doing a PhD in information technology at University of the Cumberlands, and the program is based out of their information and computer sciences school, and they sort of have different specializations. So there are some folks who specialize in cybersecurity. There's some folks who specialize in it's named information technology, which is like the same name as the degree, but essentially the information technology specialization is more on like the data mining side of things. So okay. using like uh, different database technology, using uh, data science and big, um, big data solutions. Um, and so I guess I would say that the program overlaps in that is about how to use information systems and how to set um, information governance and strategy to achieve basically the things we were just talking about. Like, are you even ready to have a data scientist? Um, So that's kind of what the program focuses on. Awesome. Okay. Fair enough. And for context, people, I'm, I'm at University of Houston doing a degree in ostensibly information systems, but we'll see what it actually ends up being in. But that's that's the label anyway. So very similar, um, perhaps a little bit less technically focused. Uh, we, The information systems field, this will come as a surprise to most people. So you'll please give me your feedback on this. Mm-hmm. I, it's mostly just been social. <laughs> there should be a lot of professors who take issue with this. That's okay. It's mostly just social psychology with uh, uh-huh. work groups historically that have worked with computers. So like a lot of yeah. behavioral research, not that there's anything wrong with behavioral or experimental research. Again, yeah. life sciences background, all for it. 
mm-hmm. but in terms of the utility of a lot of social scientific theories, they have a, you know, they have an upper limit on their explanatory power as compared to, you know, natural science theories broadly. Speaking. Yes. Yes. I can definitely see that because a lot of the core courses I had to take as part of the program were more focused on like the strategy, the governance, the um, uh, like emerging risks and things like that. Um, it was really the specialization courses that allowed you to kind of dive a little bit more into the area that you're interested in. And then obviously the the research, which mm-hmm. is, you know, heavy on stats and things like that. Sure. Yeah. And, and that's an applied setting, right? Because you're going to have to use the stats towards testing something yes. or, or explaining something. Okay. Yeah. So one thing I would say for folks who are interested in breaking into this space and are considering the academic route is, well, one, really, really consider that very carefully. Uh, two, yes. uh, if I hope that what you hear in, in your answer, Leandra, which is, you know, there are these specializations that you can get once you get past the fundamentals um, that kind yes. of open the landscape back up to you. Uh, I have a similar experience, except that the at the time when I was going through those specialization courses, certain things like machine learning were mm-hmm. prohibitive, like you could not go do that uh, oh. for reasons that I'll go into in a different episode. Uh, but <laughs> But I'm not, I'm not failing to broach the topic now because I'm a, yeah, I fear reprisal from my university. I don't care. Mm-hmm. They don't care. Um, yeah. We're past that stage. But I will say, be strategically disagreeable, and mm-hmm. and you know, kind of like you would make a business case for having access to data in industry. Make mm-hmm. the case about why having more tools in your tool belt will help you so- solve a different or a more broad array of problems. It doesn't mean yeah. that you're sacrificing deep knowledge for, you know, the, uh, the broad, but shallow. Mm-hmm. Instead, what you're mm-hmm. saying is I'm willing to undergo and do both. And, you know, that's a lot of responsibility for someone to take on, but, but I yes. think, you know, it, in our experience, it's probably been uh, rewarding that way. Absolutely. I had a similar experience, um, with my university. I think I like asked to take a particular math class. I was like, Oh, that sounds dope. Can I take that? And they're like, I mean, you can, but it's not going to like Mm-hmm. go towards your degree or anything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly. So even when people shut doors, that's okay. You have the opportunity to do, to get creative about how, how you get to that end anyway. And a lot yes. of times I can help bring things out of you. I think one thing that's been rewarding for me is I've have, we have a relatively large cohort for mm. our program. Traditionally, we have four. So I have three peers mm-hmm. and all of us have stuck through so far. So we've all, we're all into our goodness, this will be going in our fourth year next year. So, you know, it's great that way. I'm very grateful for them. Uh, They have been fantastic. They have come around because they have a little bit less empirical exposure than I do. Uh Uh, They've come around to this, not that they want to master machine learning or deep learning or anything like that, but they want to be able to read a paper that uses those techniques and Mm. have some way to gauge the results, for example. And so I talked with a couple people who are still theory inclined, but are open to the empirical side of things about Mm -hmm. how they would go about doing this. Cause they're both very technically skilled too on the quantitative techniques. And they said, Mm -hmm. well, you can pick it up as you need. You can learn it on the job. And I thought, well, one of you is an actuary and the other (laughs) one of you has only siblings with math PhDs. So like, perhaps you guys are not the most, uh, it's not the most generalizable case to, to, you know, go from, but what I'd learned was, okay, well, if you can take away a few core things, so basic statistics, training, linear algebra, mm-hmm. um, 
econometric techniques, if you can kind of abstract out some introductory level there and offer that as a supplemental uh, path uh, training, then, then maybe those are true. Maybe you can't just pick up a book and learn it as you need. And yeah. so what we did was we started developing like a peer led group that, that covered those things, you know, so no grades, you know, maybe like a uh-huh. chapter of reading a week, relatively uh-huh. little work, but, but at least you had the exposure. And I think that was, it served at least myself and one other person well, and uh-huh. some of the junior cohorts uh, have really benefited from it as well, which is, you know, nice. Yeah, that is very creative. That's cool that you guys decided to just take action anyway, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of like, a, well, they can't stop us as long as we're doing everything that they want us to be doing. So if we're, yeah. if we're willing to take on, if this is actually something we're interested in, we're willing to take on the responsibility to go and pursue it, then, then let's do it. So what I'll do is I'll, because those are aggregated from free online materials, I'll drop those in this episode's artifact, in addition to some of the uh, free online, free, or as you mentioned, affordable online uh, venues that people can explore for advanced training in this area. So yeah. feel free to use them. Uh, they're crowdsourced. There's, as far <laughs> as I'm aware, everything is fair use in there. And if, if not, then I'll get in trouble. No one else will. <laughs> All right. So Leandro, we've got about, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes or so left. You've been very generous with your time. I want to ask you two general questions that are, you know, kind of still in this controversy space. And then I promised a fun rapid fire round and we'll get to that. So this one is one of those annoying questions that if we're asked in an interview, you'd be like, come on. But, (laughs) But it's interesting because I think it makes people think about how, about maybe some of the more medium to long term implications for data science and how we balance that with other considerations. Mm. I'm a big, I'm very bullish on data science, but I don't think it's the answer to everything, for example. Mm -hmm. So in a world full of nearly perfect predictions or perfect predictions, whichever you prefer, what is Mm -hmm. the role of human understanding? Ooh, I've never gotten that question in an interview. I think that's a fascinating question. (laughs) Um, well, I do think that if if that were to be possible, that there is something to be said about understanding the model that produced those predictions and why it's able to do so. I think that human understanding is still very much required. Um, I know a lot of talk is around uh, like AutoML stuff right now in terms mm-hmm. of being able to make it more click of a button ish. And maybe in the future at some point, it literally will be a click of a button. And that would be very fascinating. Um, But it's just hard for me to imagine being completely removed from the problem in the context and having to understand the inner workings of both the problem and the model. So I think human understanding will always be required, even if the predictions are perfect. And then I don't know if if this is in the scope of your question, but I was talking to a friend about how like, I don't even have to remember certain things anymore because of like auto complete and and things like that. So if we're also talking about how will human development look or the evolution of humans look if we no longer have to think a lot about a lot of things Mm -hmm. because we have a model that will do it for us. I'm actually curious as well like obviously it's it's a luxury to not have to um 
you know, do, you know, derivatives by hand anymore because you mm-hmm. can just upload a package and it'll do it for you. But yeah. um yeah, I don't know. I don't know really how I feel about losing or having grown distance between the the model itself and myself. Hmm. Yeah. That's a fair answer. It's a tough question, no matter yeah. what your background or your training is, but I really appreciate you taking it seriously. I think that the reason I chose understanding there, because I've heard a variant of this question from one of the people on my committee, actually, and I thought it was good, but understanding, I think it, people will say that science contributes to the domain of human knowledge, which I don't mm-hmm. think is precise enough. What mm-hmm. it does, because I think you can have a model that predicts well, uh, that still you can know that it's predicting well. For example, you may not know mm-hmm. why, as you mentioned, knowing the intricacies of the model. And you can also have models that are more evolutionary and that are more hardwired into people. And it's mm-hmm. kind of an inherited model or heuristic. And mm-hmm. you don't necessarily have to know why that's the case uh, to know that it has some functional utility or had some functional mm-hmm. utility. But mm-hmm. if you go to the level of understanding, it's richer. And so mm-hmm. I think that in the best and most generalizable case, social scientific theories should aim to expand the domain of human understanding. And mm-hmm. so I, I like your answer. I like that you you touched on knowing why the model's working or why they do. Uh, mm-hmm. Perhaps there's something, arguably there's something truly stochastic about the nature of reality anyway. So just mm-hmm. because the model's working this week, if it stops working next week, we might, you know, we might need some people who can help us make sense of why that happened or what we should do then. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there's also the interesting implication about if you have multiple models that seem to be performing, you know, relatively well compared to one another, how do you mm-hmm. vet those models? And this can be in the prediction mm-hmm. space, or it can be in the traditional, you know, academic research setting space. How do you yeah. evaluate potential, you know, explanations that seem to be mutually exclusive from one another? Yeah, that's really interesting. It's almost, we're almost talking like the philosophy of yeah. oh, certainly. Like modeling a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, and yeah, as as someone who is trying to become more well-versed in deep learning, I can definitely see like how there's that there's that balance in complexity and explainability where it's like, let's use this if it's the best model, but in terms of explaining how it works or why it works, it's not as simple as like decision mm-hmm. tree or something. So yeah, it's interesting. I think just like anything else in life, there's there's pros and cons to yes. it. Um, and it's just about outweighing those for your particular use case. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and give, being open to feedback about why you might have gotten yes. them wrong um, or why, why yes. things may have changed and, and it's time to pivot, uh, to use another buzzword. <laughs> the uh, Okay, so, and just, I guess, for people who maybe aren't as technically you know aware or ingrained in this space, you, you highlighted deep learning there as an example, right? As opposed to a decision tree. Um, can you perhaps explain just, you know, yeah. to a lay person, why there might be different levels of access to understanding how those models are working? Yes. So deep learning is essentially a group of sort of modeling techniques that are designed more or less after how the, the human brain kind of functions. So it's, uses neural networks. There's a bunch of them. There's CNNs, RNNs, uh, long-term, short-term memory uh, models. But essentially, 
all of these models aim to take a series of inputs and then does some stuff in the middle and then it predicts it out at the end as in terms of an output and it can be uh, multi-label, multi-class, et cetera. And that stuff that happens in the middle is very math intensive mm -hmm. and uh, a, a lot of uh, like matrix stuff happening, you know, matrix multiplication. You've got these activation functions and you've got uh, like, you know, your errors and then like your weights and all this stuff and bias is happening in the middle. So um, that is not very meaningful to like a business executive. Right. Um, but most people can kind of understand the intuition behind a decision tree, even if they don't understand like uh, like information theory or they don't understand mm -hmm. how things are divided up. Like you understand the intuition um, similar to like Bayesian statistics, for instance, like I still get caught up on a lot of the, the logic behind it, but it's actually very intuitive to how we think about things anyway. Mm -hmm. So Deep learning is just not very intuitive, essentially. Agreed. Yeah. And a decision tree, you know, it's easy to represent pictorially, for example. Yeah. And it's like, like you said, it's intuitive. It's easy to abstract. But if, if you showed someone, you know, <laughs> especially <laughs> models that people in tech are working with that are, you know, deep learning and you showed them uh, a visual representation of it and you said, <laughs> this is our, you know, our model, our trained model, it would mean not very much to most people. And, and even some people who use that for important decisions all that, what you called stuff in the middle is, you know, for a lot of people, even technical people, it is just stuff in terms yes. of something needs to be tuned or trained, but, but that stuff is not uh, as easy to probe as something, for example, like a decision tree or a traditional regression model, something like that. Yes, exactly. Awesome. All right, Leandro, last question before the fun rapid fire. Uh, <laughs> and this deals with the topic of diversity. So this topic has also come up. I think it's a hot topic in, in data science, more generally as well, obviously, but also yes. in data science. And I, this is where I think that data science actually has something, probably a lot of things to contribute. Um, yes. But it's certainly not immune from, obviously, legacy artifacts and the difficult and thorny challenges of you know increasing yeah. diversity in the workplace. So I yeah. was wondering, first, can we talk about diversity from... Uh, training perspectives, people's different mm -hmm. backgrounds, right? So obviously we come from mm -hmm. non-traditional data science backgrounds. Uh, right. We talk about demographic diversity, for example, right? So perhaps under or overrepresented groups in here and, and what, you know, why that might be the case and how, how might we make data science more accessible going forward. Mm -hmm. And then uh, also philosophical, we can leave that for, for mm -hmm. a little bit. So training okay. and, and demographic, however you want to take this. Um, for training, well, Actually, for both, it's, it's a very, very, as you sort of hinted to, complex thing to tackle because the, the bulk of the work required to make it more equitable doesn't sit just on one institution. You know, it's not like, hey, Google, you need to hire more diverse, you know, or it's not just even like, hey, universities, you need to make sure that all your students are at least exposed to like programming or something, mm -hmm. or even like we can bring it all the way down to like grade school, okay. you know, like it's just, unfortunately there's a, there's a, it takes a whole village to tackle both the, the training and the demographic part of diversity. Um, I think that there is a misconception that 
data science or tech in general is immune to the diversity problem because I think a lot of, I think tech is in generally, um, is generally correlated or people think that it's correlated more with like more liberal uh, towns or something like New York, LA, San Francisco, Seattle. So I think there's the perception that people who work in those spaces are just as diverse as those cities, um, but that's not usually the case. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm being asked, like, how do you fix that? It, it's so huge. Like, it's so hard because, again, as someone who was a hiring manager, I can tell you, looking at the resumes that I received, um, you don't get a lot of people from certain either training backgrounds or from demographic backgrounds or even geographic, like sure. geographically, you know, like it's rare to get someone from Arkansas, you know, or something mm -hmm. like that. Okay. Um, and when I do, I usually jump on it because it's so fascinating <laughs> to me. And I, I hired a young woman from Wyoming. Actually, I ended up hiring two people from Wyoming. Um, and actually, they had a natural science background. They had um, a geography background. Was it geography? Geom geography. It's like with rocks. People oh, who study rocks. <laughs> so geology. Geology. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. A lot of I'm geos. I'm smart. I promise you I'm smart. <laughs> no, I trust me. I, I'm aware. You're good. Yeah, they were both geology majors, actually, and they wanted to get into the okay. analytics. But um, yeah, it's a very challenging question. But I, I think that the way that we can address it is that everyone has to realize they can either be a part of the solution or they can kind of not help or not do anything. So for me, I went out of my way to like go on LinkedIn and to find more diverse candidates, people who have a background in English or something and who did a boot camp in software engineering um, because a lot of people who do boot camps get looked over sometimes mm. um, or trying to find people from more ethnically diverse backgrounds or more women or um, just more people who you don't typically see in that space instead of just playing a very passive role and just letting HR sort of send me resumes. I took it upon myself to actually go out and try to recruit people. Um, so yeah, I think unfortunately or fortunately, it takes a whole village to, to tackle that problem. There's a lot of probably policy and legislative things that need to be put in place. Um, but I think universities should focus on, you know, especially these universities that call themselves liberal arts, you know, liberal arts is not just studying a little bit of English and taking a philosophy class and sure. taking a music intro theory class, it should also include, hey, let's take a object-oriented programming course just to round you out a little bit. You know, I think that's valuable. Sure. Okay. So I can see that. So I, I do, I don't want to put you in an unfair position because you, you frame, you, maybe I misspoke, but you talked about it as a problem to solve. Yeah. So I think that there's a lot in, embedded in that and it's, mm. it's a fair conceptualization, but it's, you know, it's probably a lot of problems. Um, mm. And and it's and perhaps some aspects of it are not prop like for example you mentioned you get you know your resumes were not didn't have the same demographic representation for example of LA were not the resumes you were getting right and so it's like well is that a problem it's like well it depends there's a lot going on there right because yeah. there's a lot of steps that precede someone submitting yes. a resume to your uh, your job posting and I think that your your 
your approach to being proactive about how you recruit and perhaps network uh, in, in places that are traditionally overlooked is a good one. There's For those of you who are in hiring manager positions, there are ways to do this that are legal and there's ways to do this that are illegal. Make sure yes. you're doing them in the legal ways. And right. also uh, you can do that in a way that's kind of like a rising tide lifts all ships, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be, um, how do I say this? For example, I'll, I'll just come out and say my perspective is like, I don't think quota-based anything is very construct. I think it maybe provides the veneer of a short-term solution right? with long-term costs and yes. downs and, and backfire and, and all sorts of stuff that is, that is not productive. But right. you can do things in a way that is that is constructive and, and does have a, a you know kind of cast a wider net. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, I think the quota thing is almost like it defeats the purpose because mm. it, it it almost makes it seem like it's no longer about inclusivity, but it's like this quantitative process of meeting a certain number, you know. Um, but it's like, how do you it's hard, man. It's a huge, it's a huge thing. And like you said, you know, it, it, the, the process starts before the application process. Right. It starts way before, and mm -hmm. there's only so much institutions can actually do about that. So. Or even, I would argue, even should do about that. Or even should do. Right. Yeah. However, you know, that doesn't mean that we have to throw up our hands and say, okay, well, everything is perfect as is, or there's, you know, nothing further that we need to work on. Um, certainly that's, I don't think that's the case. I worked at a former company in a informal capacity because I had some quantitative <laughs> background and the person who was doing this didn't. Uh, but this individual was aware of my background and they said, hey, we're working on some diversity and leadership metrics, separate mm. issues. Um, you know, would you kind of have any insights? And I said, sure. And I had some ecology background and there's diversity measures that are very common there that come from information theory as, as well as some other ones, biodiversity, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And so I said, okay, well, here's some metrics we can think about, you know, operationalizing. Um, but there's two things I'm going to say, if I'm going to do this one, like you have to like CYA for yourself, right? So like mm -hmm. do whatever you need to there, but two, we're not going to do this in terms of advocating for any outcome predetermined. If it's going to mm -hmm. be data-driven and we want to be aware of where we stand, then we're going to be evidence-based and and one prescriptive solution that you should not advocate for because it's a terrible precedent is quota-based mm. anything for selection um, yeah. and we thought because you know this company operates in a variety of geographic footprints with people of different backgrounds mm. uh, one thing they could do this is just as a something that might be useful for people who are trying to think of ways to increase representation in the workforce without opening themselves up to kind of backfire effects or um, maybe, you know, arbitrarily lowering some bar that doesn't need to yeah. be lowered. And that, that's said kind of imprecisely, but I think you get what I'm trying to say. Yes. What you yes. can do is you could start putting stuff in there. Like if you have a geographic footprint where, for example, you're in Houston, it's very diverse, mm -hmm. make bilingual, have that oh. be a, an additional perk for people for, you know, any role that is, client facing internal client yeah. or external client, because you're going to have people from, uh, you know, Vietnamese backgrounds, Hispanic backgrounds, uh, Middle yeah. Eastern backgrounds, like all sorts of stuff where that could be something where it's a natural way to say, Hey, this is an asset for our team. Yes. It, it recognizes that there is some intrinsic diversity that, you know, could be, you know, forwarded here, but you're not doing it in a way where you're saying like, Oh, we need a person who looks like this. And it's mm. like, that's so it's, it's a crude 
crude intervention yes. to say the least. Let's put it that way. Yes. And I'll also say that um, I read an article a long time ago, and I, I would butcher it if I tried to cite it, but essentially it was critiquing Silicon Valley's um, method of filtering applications based on the kind of school that someone attended. Right. Um, and that obviously backfired a little bit because, you know, not, well, there's, there's multiple ways, right? For instance, going to an Ivy League university might not be the most affordable thing for someone for sure. one. And then for two, maybe someone went to an HBCU, you know, and maybe that's not considered as highly or as prestigious, or maybe someone went to um, a community college, you know, or something like that, or a state college, you know, these things are, um, they should be, I think, still considered very strong candidates, you know, given Mm -hmm. their background and their experience. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of practices to your point that can backfire and go against what I guess they're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. Even something like the Ivy league admissions, you know, it's all great. And yeah. you know, I don't want to be a hypocrite because you and I both did something associated with one of the Ivies, yeah. but, but they also have a very large legacy admission and I'm not yeah. knocking any, any individual legacy member might be you know exceptionally qualified, but the yeah. idea that it's a great signal for expertise is I think yes. at best questionable at this point. Yes. So we've Absolutely. touched on issues of, you mentioned diversity. You said something about uh, being equitable in the workplace, inclusive. Um, I do I think it's fair to say that these have taken on a small p political connotation in some sense. Yeah. And, and I want to get into that in terms of like the political philosophical aspect. But mm-hmm. I do, before I say that, I want to say that I think the, the, some of the best aspects of those three, especially the triad together, is mm-hmm. this notion of belonging in that if someone mm-hmm. is there, whether they look the same as the people they're working with or look differently mm-hmm. based on some superficial or not so superficial characteristics yeah. um, the idea that hey we're all here we can work towards constructive ends maybe we're even like uh tense with each other at times but it, it produces something <laughs> useful at the end yeah. and uh and everyone belongs here right we've all passed through the bars necessary yeah. to get here uh, yeah. i think that speaks to the imposter syndrome you know more generally yeah. but it also speaks to the idea that hey people can break through um into these spaces and data science, though not perfectly, I think increasingly over time, it's going to be a, there are some objective objective skill sets that you can yeah. demonstrate and yeah. you can become undeniable. Um, and yeah. hopefully the, the um, whatever arbitrary additional hurdles some people face versus others, hopefully those are erased as quickly as possible. Yes. Yes. Hopefully. And I really like what you said that like just trusting the process a little bit once you are admitted to whatever it is mm. that you're trying to achieve. Like trust that you are qualified and that you belong there. Okay. All right. So last sub question and then the rapid fire. So we yes. talked about uh, kind of demographic diversity, uh, kind of background training diversity, skill set diversity. Now philosophical, and you could take this the political route, or you can say, you know, deontological utilitarian, or you could be a positivist, <laughs> interpretivist, whatever you want. But generally speaking, I think there is a perception that data science generally, but especially within big tech, has a very specific, at least public facing philosophy. Mm. Do you think that that, first, does that make sense? 
what I'm saying? I, I think so. I okay. think so. Yeah. Okay. Um, and do you think that that is a accurate and B, mm-hmm. um, do you think just like having people with various different training backgrounds or who come from different, you know, uh, cultural backgrounds, let's say, just like there's some added utility there in terms of considering things from a different angle that maybe you hadn't mm-hmm. considered before or not mm-hmm. overlooking a problem with your model, for example, that mm-hmm. you know you otherwise would. Do you think that that extends politically? Could could someone who is a a Bernie Sanders supporter, an Elizabeth Warren <laughs> supporter, a Donald Trump supporter, and a Mike Pence supporter, could they uh-huh. all have something unique to offer on a data science team? Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, that, these are great questions, Michael. Um, yes, I, I think so. Uh, and for the same reason, this probably will get a little political, but, you know, as I mentioned, I, I'm from Ohio, you know, I'm from sure. a Midwest state and um, even think about moving to another Midwest state because I live in LA right now. So mm-hmm. growing up, I was used to what I would quantify as a more of a political discourse, you know, I I guess Ohio can be considered a swing state. Maybe Um, there's a lot of states kind of in the middle that tend to go back and forth between red and blue. And that's because you have sort of a mix of those perspectives. And I would also argue that uh, not to get too political, but I would argue that some of the politicians there might have a little bit more of a fire underneath them because they know that they are not automatically voted in, you know, like mm. it's, there's yeah. some discourse where it's like, you know, I might not vote for you if you do that again. So mm. as someone who now lives in a coastal city, it's a little bit different. Um, LA obviously is very progressive. It's very mm. liberal. Um, and so I say all this to mean that I think the same thing can happen in business on a team where if you have too much of one perspective, you're not really going to be achieving much more than an echo chamber, essentially. Okay. And I think that even if there's someone on the team who you're like, I don't know what they're talking about. I think they're crazy. And I think their ideas are stupid. Like, even if you have that kind of uh, attitude towards someone, at least now you know that that perspective exists, you know, mm-hmm. that's good to know. Um, I'll give a more concrete example. I went to a, another data science conference that was in New York and we got to sit in this like, almost like a little panel, but except everyone was part of the panel in a weird way. So we were just talking about our experience in data science. And there was this gentleman who worked for a big tech company. I won't mention who it is. And I believe he worked in Florida. I think he was in Florida. And the company that he was working with was consulting the police department in that uh, area. Mm. And they were building a model to essentially predict who was going to commit a crime and what was going to happen, where it was going to happen. And as you can imagine, that's a very, very sticky subject. Lots of Uh, landmines, for sure. Lots of landmines there. Mm -hmm. And what was very surprising to me was that he didn't see anything sticky about it. He didn't see anything like uh, even controversial really about it until we engaged in that discourse in that room. So I don't think anyone he worked with really had the opposite perspective to share with him. Um, And he worked very closely with the police department and it sounded like, you know, they 
they they had a you know a particular way that they went about doing things and none of it was questioned because he was like this is how they did it this is the data i plugged it in here's the answer you know right um so i think it is very important to have people from uh different you know different backgrounds in in every way different you know political affiliation or different educational background obviously like you mentioned you have to have that core fundamentals but presuming you have that i think i think there's always um value in diversity awesome so that's great i think that's a great thing to to kind of switch to our to our, our questions, I, I want to put a bow on that. This idea that everyone has at least the same fundamental training, right? You can specialize and, and have different levels of expertise in different areas once you're within an organization, but everyone's passed at least some bar that is non-trivial to get in. <laughs> and and then you, we can all agree that we're working at least not destructively and hopefully constructively <laughs> towards positive ends. Yes. And and then I think that if you can, if you have that agreement and you have that kind of standardization on the front end, I think that uh, my, it's a philosophical axiom for me. It's diversity. Yeah. How could it be anything other than a strength? Yes. In, in the, yes. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you, Leandra. So, all right, a few rapid fire questions. Mm-hmm. And uh, that doesn't mean you have to answer them very quickly. You can answer them with whatever time you want. So what, do you have a favorite algorithm? Oh, favorite algorithm. Um, like, like data mm-hmm. modeling. Yeah. modeling yeah. Um, I would say, I think random forest is pretty cool. Forest. Okay. Any particular reason why? Um, when I first learned about it, like I was basically upgrading my data science toolkit from decision trees. Right. Mm-hmm. And when I learned about random forest, I remember being blown away about the concept of having like this voting system where it's like, you have all these trees and then depending on how those results turn out, it almost like averages that result. And then when I was reading about it, I can't remember what book I was reading, but they were tying it to like just how humans in general kind of act. And I just thought that was really cool. Um, so the concept of using a, um, a model that uses multiple models and then tries to like aggregate those results. I always thought that was pretty cool. Awesome. Okay. Fair enough. Mac or PC? Ooh. So, sorry, Linux folks. I know, I know, I know. We hear you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm not saying this because of my employer, but honestly, I, I do prefer PC. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Same. R or Python? Ooh. So I learned R first. Mm-hmm. And I was all about it. And I still am all about it. But now that I've learned Python, it feels more applicable to other stuff. So, oof, I might say Python. I've never said that out loud. So that feels okay. weird. Well, fair enough. We won't hold it against you. And, <laughs> and I, I think that that's a fair thing to say as well. Like Both for the modeling side and the statistics side of things, both are very usable. Python yes. probably does have a little bit more general appeal and that it can be used for other things as well. Yes. Um, I'm hearing the voice of someone in my head, uh, that same <laughs> individual who has the accounting background and played violin. He would argue with me and, you know, he's a data science director. So fair enough, but but we'll have that conversation another day. All right. Tabs or spaces? Tabs. All right. Cloud or on-prem? Cloud. Yeah. Okay. Early bird or night owl? Night owl. Yeah. All right. Stradivarius or a Staunton chess set? A Staunton chess set. 
Yeah. All right. Fair enough. All right. One final question. What is one question I should have asked you, but I didn't? Oh, interesting. Um, one question you should have asked me, but didn't. I I honestly found your question so insightful and so in-depth. Um, you really had me thinking pretty hard on a lot of those questions. So I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, I feel like you did ask a lot of the questions, even some questions that I think some people don't ask enough, you know. Um, but I do wish that I asked you more questions, if that makes any sense, because I feel like I, like I wanted your perspective on some things. Sure, sure. Well, if, you, if you'd if you like, you're more than welcome to ask them now. And and certainly we can do this again. We have yeah. to do that. Yeah, we should we should totally do this again. Um, if not, you know, on this, just personally, because it would sure. be to get your take. But uh, where do you see yourself going, you know, after your program is up? I know you mentioned, you know, teaching is not necessarily the top of your list. Mm -hmm. where, where do you like to be? So uh, so once I'm done with this PhD program, assuming that I complete it, because it's, of course, a roll of the dice semester to semester, um, not yeah. in terms of bandwidth or anything necessarily, just in terms of mutual interest Yeah, <laughs> uh, and no hard feelings <laughs> on either party's part, as far as I'm aware. Uh, I, I am interested in, in potentially teaching. I don't believe in the academic incentive structure, and this is a oh. topic for another day probably, but, mm -hmm. but I have a lot of thoughts on that. And so I, I think that, well, I've, I've already turned down a very healthy salary once because oh. I didn't believe in the incentive. And this is not me being like, you know, virtuous or anything. It's just yeah, yeah, yeah. my internal code, like it, it was, tough, but it was obviously the yeah. right decision in the long term. Yeah. Um, so I don't care how glamorous the position is if mm -hmm. I don't believe in the incentive structure. So honestly, I think that my goals are not to be a podcaster uh, for life. <laughs> That's not what I want to be, but I want to have interesting conversations with folks. I want to help people solve problems with math. And I mm -hmm. think that there's an underappreciated aspect of fake news. That's what my research is on. Right. And uh, it touches on a lot of you know, other hot topics this, you know, these days. And I hope to help not so much inform policy as a top-down measure, but to uh, improve understanding as a bottom-up. And mm. so probably work, hopefully working as a data scientist with some sort of independent media. And I don't mean politically neutral. I just mean yeah, yeah. not associated with some sort of legacy organization. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. Um, yeah. We totally should talk uh, yeah. again. Yeah, that, that's really cool. You mentioned something that, uh, oh, the, you know, really, you know, keeping your values and knowing what's right for you, regardless of like the compensation package and everything. I think one thing that's really good for listeners to hear is that um, don't idolize the title so much. You know, mm -hmm. there are a lot of things in life that in, in, in your career that are more important than the title. Um, for me personally, who you report to is like, it's a deal breaker for, mm. for me, um, great, having great a point. manager that is like a really good supervisor is key. And my current supervisor, I absolutely love her. Mm. I absolutely love her. And one reason, one major selling point to going to Microsoft was her. And, um, if I didn't have that kind of feeling, it's, it's, it, it might not be me here just because that's very important and also i would say opportunity learning opportunity um you know people who are trying to get into data science don't scoff at a data analyst title there's a lot you can do there oh, and yeah. arguably 
being in a safer environment to do so. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's very good advice. The the person or people you work for uh, and with, um, as well as the the company, you know, more generally is is going to affect your day to day happiness and sense of meaning probably much more than whether you're a quantitative researcher, a principal data scientist, a data analyst, you know, and, and as you mentioned before, in, in due time, you can work your way up. And certainly I think you embody that principle. If anyone is curious, just go look at her CV. It's pretty, pretty stellar. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Leandra. So we will definitely do this again. And if you're ever in Houston or generally the area, let me know. We'll do it in person. Yes. Wife and I would be happy to take you and your husband out on the town. And yeah. uh, until next time, stay Thanks. honest, stay rigorous, and keep speaking freely. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Leandra. We appreciate your support, engagement, and feedback. So feel free to connect with us on any of our social media profiles. You can support our work at freedomcast.locals.com or at freedomcast.us. From is to ought is a Freedomcast Network production.